All right, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1 today. And it is getting a touch warmer uh, out here, so we rejoice in every degree that we get today. 1 Peter chapter 1, let me put out all my weights here on all the pages across the area here. Uh, today, as we've been singing so far, we're going to rejoice in our Lord and his resurrection through preaching as well. On this Easter Sunday, I want to briefly consider with you a one text of scripture that emphasizes how God works through the resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, from the dead. There are a whole lot of things that God accomplished when he... Uh, when he raised Jesus from the dead. But this text that we'll consider in 1 Peter chapter 1 will point out one of the benefits for you and I if you know Jesus as your Savior. As we come to 1 Peter, I want to give you just a little bit of background information and encourage you to pay close attention and stick with me for just about three or four minutes so that you will be able to make more sense out of this text in 1 Peter, the author is a man by the name of Simon Peter. He was an apostle. He was a man who knew Jesus Christ perhaps better than any other person in this world. As Simon Peter was one of the 12 disciples and one of the inner circle of three who were able to spend even more time with him. Simon Peter writes this book to a special group of people and uh, near the beginning of this letter, he tells us a little bit about the group of people that he's addressing. For instance, in the very first verse, 1 Peter 1 and verse 1, Peter calls these people elect exiles of the dispersion in the regions of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. As a modern reader, that might not mean much to you at all, but I just want to take a moment to, to try to understand a little bit more about who Peter is writing this book to. Near the end of that description, he says that these readers are located among five regions or provinces in Asia Minor. That is modern day Turkey. These regions were huge, yet they were sparse, sparsely populated in their remotest areas, and that is those five regions that he describes here. These regions are in the northern part of Asia Minor or Turkey today. The whole area identified in these regions uh, would be about 129,000 square miles. Again, to, to you, that, that might not make much sense, but, uh, but when we compare it to some of the states in the United, the United States of America, that could be helpful. So, this region takes up an area that's just under the size of the state of California. So this is a massive area, but it's quite rural. There aren't many cities here. But notice he describes them as the elect exiles of the dispersion. You see that in verse 1, the elect exiles of the dispersion. What does that mean? This means that they were scattered foreigners. They were temporary residents in a foreign place in these provinces of northern Turkey. As we 
dig into this, I, I just want to go one step deeper with you. And the, the reason I would do this is I want you to see that this was an especially dark, difficult time for the original readers. Perhaps you're here today and you aren't experiencing much hope at this particular point in your life. It's a difficult time for you. This text of scripture will be so joyous to you. It seems most likely to me that Peter is addressing believers in Jesus Christ in these five regions, whom God had relocated to Northern Turkey from the city of Rome. One of the greatest unsolved mysteries about the book of 1 Peter is how so many believers came to populate or live in these regions. About 20 years after Peter writes this, there are so many believers in Jesus Christ in these regions that the Roman leader has to start deporting them because he does not agree with their values. He deports thousands of them. So one of the questions that scholars come to in these areas is how many believers, how did these believers, how did the numbers grow so quickly? And I think a strong case can be made that one of the ways this happened was that there was a Roman emperor by the name of Claudius who started deporting people from the city of Rome. And some of the people that he deported were those people who were not Roman citizens. And among those people, as he deported people into different places throughout Asia Minor, he starts sending out Jewish people and followers of Jesus Christ. And so Peter writes this letter to believers in Jesus Christ, whom God had relocated from some city into these regions. Now, there's one more description of them I want you to see before we dig into our verses, and that's found in verse 6. So look down in your Bible at verse 6. It says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, and here it is, you have been grieved by various trials. They were not only scattered exiles, we learn that they had been grieved in various trials. That is, Peter knew that they were facing persecution and trials from the surrounding culture the cities and towns around them because they were followers of Jesus Christ. And Peter knew in a very real way that these trials had brought believers grief. Actually, later in the book, we, we are given clues to find out that these believers who've been deported to these regions of northern Turkey have been marginalized by their society. They've been alienated from relationships with others that they loved and cared for, and they've been threatened with a loss of honor and position. So men and women, we must know that Peter writes this letter to suffering, grieving, scattered foreigner believers who were facing ostracism from their surrounding culture because of their commitment to Jesus Christ. That's the background. Yet in the text we're going to look at, just these three verses in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter tells his readers that they have so much, so much to thank God for. So let's pick up this text and see what Peter is thinking. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation 
ready to be revealed in the last time. As we come to this portion, this beginning of the passage here, Peter speaks well of God. What he does in verse 3 is, is he adapts a normal Jewish benediction of praise to God. Blessed be God. You can find that all throughout, for instance, the Old Testament scripture. There's a special collection of these called the 18 Jewish benedictions, and they would always start out the same way. Blessed be God. But then Peter adds a distinctively Christian part. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's got this Christian blessing at the beginning of verse 3. Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and then what he does is he unfolds what these suffering, grieving, scattered foreigner believers have to be thankful for. And so I want to work through this text very briefly with you by answering three questions I think Peter answers in this text. The first question he considers right after that benediction is, what has God done for us? What has God done for you as the readers? And the core of Peter's answer comes in the middle of verse 3 in your Bible. The core of his answer is, it says there, if you look in the middle, according to his great mercy, this is what God has done. He has caused us to be born again. Now that language in the way it's stated is very important. He has caused us to be born again. Peter says here that new birth, is, uh, the new birth of his readers is something that God caused, something that God worked. And it is important for each of us here today to realize that there is no way a sinner can change his or her own nature. Is the old prophet Jeremiah in the old covenant scriptures who said this. He asked the question, can a leopard change his spots? And with that question, Jeremiah is asking, can a leopard do something to change his fundamental nature or quality? And of course, the answer is no way. A leopard cannot change his spots. But according to both the Old and the New Testament scriptures, neither can a sinful being change his fundamental quality and nature. I think of what the Apostle Paul says and how he describes it in Ephesians chapter 2. You don't need to turn there. I'll just read you a few of these descriptions. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says about the Ephesians, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom you all once lived in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So according to the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, this is something that we could not do for ourselves. We were dead in trespasses and sins, completely unable to help or deliver ourselves. So getting a new start or a new birth is something God must do. It's something he must cause. And that's what Peter is telling his readers here. God caused Peter's readers to be reborn, 
to experience a new beginning without stain or consequence of sin. And it shouldn't surprise us that Peter would say something like this. He learned this, of course, from Jesus Christ himself, the Son of God. Remember in John chapter 3, there was a, a very important, great Jewish religious teacher by the name of Nicodemus that came to Jesus one night and asked what he needed to, be, to do to be accepted by God. And Jesus said this to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say unto you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To be born again means that we experience a new relationship with God where our sins are entirely forgiven and we enjoy him as our father because of the work of his son, Jesus Christ. So men and women, to be born again requires that we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus, believe that Jesus died on the cross and was raised by God three days later for our sins. You see, the Son of God, Jesus, came as your substitute. He died the death that you deserve, but then he rose again, overcoming sin and death for you. So that men and women, boys and girls, if you believe this about Jesus, that he died on the cross in your place to bear the consequences and punishment for your sin. And he rose again from the dead. If you believe this and repent of your sin, you can be reborn. You can experience a new beginning without stain or consequence or guilt from your sin. So Peter says to these suffering, grieving, scattered foreigner believers, you have so much to thank God for. God has caused you to be reborn. But then he answers the second question a little bit later in the text. And the second question he addresses is, well, what does that mean for us? What did God do? He, he, he caused you to be born again. Well, what does that mean for you? And to answer that question, I want you to look for a key word in your Bible. You still have it open, hopefully. First Peter chapter one. We're gonna start again in the middle of verse three. And we're gonna read verse four as well. And we're gonna look for the, the English preposition to, the little word T-O, okay? And when you find this on two occur, occasions, you're going to find the key to help you know what this brings or means for believers. So look at the middle of verse three. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And this is where we'll start looking for it. He has caused us to be born again to the text says, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to, it's the second one, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Well, there's a whole lot for us to consider here in these verses, but it all starts with the two things that being born again brings. First, we have been born again, the text says, to a living hope. Although Peter's readers were experiencing difficulties and trials far away from home and they felt grief in their souls because of it, Peter says they were born again to hope. 
I want to make a few statements here about the word hope and its importance for human existence. First, I would just start by saying hope is important for every human being. I want you to consider for a moment what it means when someone loses all hope. I was doing some reading this past week of a book. The book is entitled Man's Search for Meaning. It's a very important book about uh, or memories from a man by the name of Viktor Frankl. Viktor was a survivor, survivor of Nazi prison camps who later became a well-known psychologist. In this book, one part of this book stuck out to me, and I'd like to read it to you about losing hope. He said the prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual health and hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually, he said, this happened quite suddenly in the form of a crisis, the symptoms of which were familiar to the experienced camp inmate. Usually, it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed and wash or to go out to the parade grounds. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect on him anymore. He just lay there, hardly moving. If this crisis was brought about by an illness, he refused to be taken to the sick bay or to do anything to help himself anymore. He simply gave up. There he remained, lying in his own excrement, and nothing bothered him anymore. This is an extreme example of losing hope. But men and women, we talk in ways like this as well, perhaps when we observe an elderly man or elderly woman who loses their will to live because they've lost a loved one, maybe their spouse. They just don't seem to want to go on anymore. Perhaps they're in some life and death battle through uh, a terminal disease and they don't see any way through it to make it through and so they, they give up. We say they gave up hope. Hope is important for any human being. The second, however, I, I would also say that our lives as human beings are filled with hope. Whether it is, uh, as a small child, the hope of seeing your best friend on the playground at recess that takes you through uh, all of those boring classes you had in school. How many kids are here today and you say, your favorite class in school is recess? Would you raise your hand for it? Just make it, okay. Some of the adults are actually raising their hand there too. You had the hope of recess, right? My, seeing my best friend on the playground, it kept you going. We know the hope of being asked out on a date, right? That's our hope, being asked out on a date. Or the hope that we will make the team or the hope that we would earn a, a, a scholarship, an athletic scholarship or something in college. We know the hope of our current relationship, that our current relationship might make it to marriage. All right? If not, maybe the next relationship or the next or the next. We know the hope of our next paycheck or stimulus check. Uh, and we have the hope that we'll solve all of our financial needs. We have the hope of the next season, right, of, this, of the year, summer or spring. We can't wait for it to come. We think it will come. And then it comes and goes. But our hopes are filled, our lives are filled with hope. When we lose hope as a human being, we, we normally eventually move on to some other type of hope. And that's because third, hope is necessary for our physical well-being. It looks to the future. It gives us motive and focus 
and carries us through perhaps even some of the worst conditions or experiences possible. Maybe you've been struggling with hope. You've lost it. Or you feel that all of your hopes are set on fleeting, fading things. Might I say, please pay close attention to the last five or six minutes of this sermon and the text of Scripture as I give it to you. Now, the New Testament word for hope in our text, he says we've been born again to a living hope. The New Testament word for hope is not quite equivalent to the English word hope. When we use the word hope, we think of something uh, that we are optimistic about or wish will happen. Yet in our use of the word or the concept of hope, it often carries some level of doubt or some lack of certainty. In the New Testament, however, the word for hope speaks of confident expectation. It's something that's sure and settled. There's no uncertainty. There's no doubt. It will be done. One commentator helps us in this text when he talks about the word hope in this passage. I think he brings it out very clearly. He said this, he said, this hope is not a desperate holding on to a faded dream, a dead hope. No, it's a living one, a certain one. So as we're going through this text, it's a settled and thing that will definitely come to pass. And so Peter explains what this means for us, that God caused us to be reborn. It brings to us a living hope, one that is settled and certain. But there's something else. Would you look again in verses four and five to see the second thing that being born again produces? Look at verse four. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Second, we've been born again to an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. Again, I want you to imagine these original readers, these exiled foreigners, who must have, how they must have felt when they were forced to leave their home. Perhaps they were from Rome and they were forced to leave because they were not citizens. I'm sure their personal experience induced in them feelings of hopelessness and helplessness as they left their homes, their livelihoods, their shops, everything they knew in those cities. And they left as exiles without an inheritance or a land, but God did something for them spiritually. God became a new father to them, giving them new birth into a new family with a new inheritance. And we find out in this text that this inheritance that they receive is something better than any earthly inheritance. This inheritance that he gives to them cannot be taken away. It's secure, the text says, because it is kept in heaven for them. And it is something that will not perish. That means it's something that even death itself cannot ravage. It's an inheritance that is undefiled, meaning it is unstained by any evil act, any evil person, any evil thing. And it's unfading, meaning that it is not subject to erosion or the wear of time at all. And the text says, Peter says, that it is all kept for you. 
That's what he says in verses four and five. It's all kept for you, the ones who yourselves are being guarded by the power of God as you live your lives in faith until your salvation, your ultimate salvation is fully realized at some point in the future. This is what it means to be born again. This is what it means for us. There is a salvation that is ready to be revealed. Jesus might break through the clouds at any moment to reveal our ultimate deliverance from sin, punishments of this world. Men and women, this should help us in sad times, the difficult times in which we live. We've been considering these original readers, but think about life in our own culture for a moment. We live in an age when our culture in America is turning away biblical principles of right and wrong. Biblical principles of morality, for instance. And it puts us in a very difficult position. I came across one quote from a New Testament scholar who's kind of grappling through what's going on in the United States of America today in the church and our response to it. And I, I felt like this was so well worded. He said this, it's a short little statement. He said, we live in strange times or the times we live in make strangers out of folks like you and me. He said, we live in strange times or the times we live in are making strangers out of folks like you and me. Men and women, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ and you hold to the Bible, our Christian values rooted in Scripture are beginning to ostracize us in our own culture as well. So that when we make biblical statements about like gender and sexuality, for instance, we're perceived as being bigots. We live in a culture where men are playing in women's sports, now using women's restrooms, and we're told that it's unloving, unloving of us to think differently. We live in a culture today where there is freedom to abort a child for any reason. And when we would say something from the Bible to address that, we would face ostracism, perhaps even persecution in the future. And it's good for us to know that whatever happens, we've been born again to a living hope and to an unfading inheritance and to a salvation that is ready to be revealed from heaven. If there's one more part of this text that we've skipped over and I wanna consider with you, we've answered two questions so far. One, what has God done for us? He's caused us to be born again. Two. What does that mean for us? It means a living hope. It means an unfading inheritance. But then third question we consider is how? How did God do this for us? And I'd invite you to look one more time on this Easter Sunday at verse three. You look at verse three. How did God do this for us? It says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, our new birth, 
our living hope, our heavenly inheritance is grounded in and secured only by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our new birth, our living hope, our heavenly inheritance is grounded in and secured only by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So if you're here today and you hear my voice, men and women, or boys and girls, this is how God did it. This is how God can offer a living hope. It's because there is indeed a living Savior today. He is enthroned in heaven above. He has power to deliver. He is mighty to save. He is living as a Savior. And if Jesus had not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is empty and you are still in your sins. And those who have died in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied, Paul the Apostle says. But later on he continues, he says, but in fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection from the dead. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Men and women, that's how God did it. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been caused to be reborn to a living hope, to an unspoiling inheritance through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we say with Simon Peter at the beginning of his letter, blessed, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a day to celebrate a risen Savior, born again to a living hope, and to an unfading inheritance. If you're here today and you never believed in the name of Jesus Christ to save you from your sin, there is a salvation that is ready to be revealed from heaven. Soon Jesus will come back to deliver and rapture those who are his children. I would encourage you to repent of your sin, to repent of your sin, and to believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross, but then rose again, so that you could be delivered from your sin. Let's pray together.
Father, I thank you. I thank you for the resurrection. This is how you did it. This is how you can offer a living hope because there is indeed today a living Savior. I believe that, Father. I believe it with all of my heart that there is a risen Jesus today in heaven. He is real, he lives, he's enthroned, he's powerful, and he's mighty to save. Father, if there's anyone here today who does not believe in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that they would do so at this point. This is a difference between heaven and hell. This is a difference between being forgiven or being left in your sins. This is how one becomes born again, to be reborn, not suffer the consequence of sin, punishment of sin. If there's one here today who does not believe in Jesus Christ, I pray that they would do so at this time, maybe through private prayer to you, that they would just say in their heart, Lord, I believe, God, I believe that you sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my sins. And I believe that three days later, you raised him from the dead. And Father, I, re I repent of my sin. I turn from my sin and I place my faith in his work for my deliverance. And Lord, for my brothers and sisters here today who've perhaps in, uh, gone through all kinds of different Easter's, all kinds of different Easter Sundays, I pray that this one would be fresh and new to them today. Be fresh and new. Lord, that we have a hope. We have a hope that sustains us even if we ourselves are being or would suffer. We have a hope. We have so much to be thankful for. And we say with Simon Peter, blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.